On today's episode of Crazy Busy, the interviews, we're going to meet Rosina Bakari, a woman who's a professor, author, scholar, and poet. She woke up one day and decided that was not enough and decided to do one more thing to change the world. Hang on to hear how and why in this episode. You're listening to Crazy Busy, the podcast for executives, entrepreneurs, and savvy fast trackers who want to start their week sane and end it that way too. Here's your host, growth strategist, executive coach, and millennial leadership mentor, Karen Bellantoni. Rosina, I'm so happy to meet you and have you here on the show, and we're so excited to hear your story. Thank you. It's, of course, wonderful to be here. It's always great to find space where you can be heard. You know, a uh, brilliant lady named Ian Levan Zant used to substitute at a church I would go to in Los Angeles. Wow. And she said, when you tell your story, you change the world and you heal yourself. And I heard you say something similar to that yesterday. Yes. And your story is so powerful. Uh, most people don't get to a tenth of the accomplishments you created for yourself. Tell us a little bit about even what made you and what drove you to go get your PhD and how you met your husband and became doctors together, because I do love a good romance <laughs> to start off. Uh, well, it is a good romance. It's, it's, it's interesting not to go all the way back to birth, but it is connected to my, my childhood where at the age of eight, I think I was identified as gifted. And this is in, in the, in the 60s. Mm. So if you can recall what happened, not that you were born then, I know, you know, but <laughs> if you can <laughs> recall what the 60s were like, the schools uh, had only recently be, been integrated and they really were not integrated yeah. just on paper then. And uh, it was this, the social climate was, was not good. And so I was identified as gifted and the schools wanted to bus me. We lived in a, in a poor part of Philadelphia. The schools wanted to bus me to the white parts of town where smart kids went and good kids went. And so, and my mother said, no, she didn't mm -hmm. let me go. She was a social activist. She knew that it would not be good for a community to take all the bright children out and leave, and what do you leave left and who builds up the community, that sort of stuff. And so, so she did not let me attend private school. They were going to actually offer me a scholarship for the rest of my uh, 12 years of schooling. And she said, no, lo and behold, a lot of things happen in between. There are some good, some not so good, et cetera. Lo and behold, in 12th grade, uh, I was attending an all black high school, uh, which at that time felt fine to me. It was great. And so I ended up uh, getting a scholarship to Cornell University. And you must have been top of your class. If you were I was so gifted. Yeah, I, w I was. T I hadn't I had not stayed that way all along, <laughs> but but I but I was near the top of my class. Uh, 
which means which should mean that you're smart, except you go to an inner city all black school. So it just means you're at the top of your class. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. Because what is offered there is not the same as offered in other places when you're at the top of the class. So that was my first lesson at Cornell University. So I say that to say my mother at that point realized somewhere along along the line of me being at Cornell and me being academically challenged in a way I had never been before and had been unprepared to be. Uh, but she reminded me, she said, you, you've always been gifted. And that's always where you belong. So it's kind of like, don't act like you, like, don't, like, get your stuff together. Don't act like you don't belong there now. I don't care how difficult it is. Like, that's where you are and that's where you will achieve. And so, and so, so I did. So that was just kind of the start of this, this thing, like, oh, I must show up academically in ways that I had not shown up before, which means you have to dig deeper within yourself. Yes. And you have to start asking yourself some questions about who you are and why you are and what do you want to be. So that's kind of where my story begins. begins. Right. And so through that, uh, having and I got and I graduated in four years and and then it occurred to me, oh, I really am good at this academic stuff. So I stayed in school because <laughs> that was way less scary than coming out and play, being a real adult. And so, uh, so I ended up going to uh, Brockport, SUNY Brockport, and I. And so, at 22 years old, I had my master's degree. So that put me in a field to do some serious work, mental health work, and uh, I worked as a drug and alcohol rehab therapist at 22 years of age. Oh my God. What a, what an awakening. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Changed my worldview. Uh, and I only lasted three years in the field. So I got out of the field, burned up like, oh my God, like, cause when you graduate your master's people, like you've arrived, you're going to go change the world. Yeah. And you, you want know? to serve time. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, uh, so having been burnt out, I ended up moving, moving back to Philly to kind of get a, a shift into a restart coming back to New York. I wanted you to know that I have lived in, in upstate New York for five times and will be moving back to New York for a sixth time this summer. So there is some magic about the state of New York for me. We have that in common. I've lived in New York oh four times gosh. and I went to California and came back and went to California what and came back. What is up with that? It's home. Yes, yeah. yes. So so, so when I came back this time, uh, I was at uh, Oneonta, State University of New York at Oneonta and my husband-to-be was working there. So that's where we met. He was working in higher education. Uh, administration and student services side. And I was a therapist in a counseling center, very cushioned job. I love it. But my husband didn't stay there long. He moved. I moved. He moved. Uh, he didn't want to be without me because that's what love does. Here's what a love yes. story comes into play. And so uh, a year later, uh, we got married and I moved to Wisconsin with him. So that's how we ended up. When we got married, when, not, when I met him, he was just finishing up his master's degree. But he always told me he was interested in earning his Ph.D. And so we got married. We had children right away. And I'm like, these are your Ph.D.s. <laughs> there's, a P, there's your P, there's your H, and it's not going to be a D, right? So, uh, but lo and behold, when, it, when the children were three and four, I think we moved to, we uprooted them, moved to Colorado, Greeley, Colorado, to work on our Ph.D., to work on his Ph.D. So what's interesting is that, 
while he was working on his PhD and, and I'm supporting him in that and giving feedback. And he's like, you know, you need to do this for yourself. Like you don't, like I, you don't need to be trailing behind me. Like you need to do this for yourself. And so he sort of insisted that we both come out with PhDs. So I started my program a year after him. Doesn't sound um, like anyone has to twist your arm to go more, to more school, though. No, I wish there was something beyond the PhD. You know, like I know people who get two PhDs. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But yeah, it's right. You don't. And so, uh, so I, so I finished uh, my PhD in three years, and so that we could finish together. And uh, with children at home, I was homeschooling the children at the time. How did you manage all this? This is sounds like a recipe for crazy busy. <laughs> <laughs> it it if well first I have it's busy but it's not hard, I guess, mm-hmm. and that's the difference. I'm I'm much better at doing things that are busy because I'm good at a lot of stuff. I'm not. I I've recently learned that I'm not nearly as good at doing things that are hard. So that's my hard work is learning to do things that are difficult because when a lot of things come easy for you, you don't get a lot of practice at doing things that are difficult. Yeah. So. And so you had succeeded at all of these things that are hard for most of us. Yes. And now your life started to come into a place where you were going to be faced right with some hard things. Right. Tell us about hard that. is different. Hard yes. is way different than than um than busy. So uh so here I am. I've done all these all these life tasks that tell you you're successful because you, they've been easy for me. Now the hardest thing comes into my life which is healing from childhood sexual abuse. Now the hard part starts. Yes. It's like, oh, that's not a substitute. You can't do this. You can't give me all the easy, busy work and then throw the really hard work at, at me. And so, uh, which which I'm sure had something to do with the comfort of busy for me because it becomes a survival tactic. Yes, it does. Right? People, uh, survivors of abuse are typically uh, either quantum achievers yeah. or they get into drugs and alcohol to exactly. mask the pain. So right. for you- Not a lot of medium. You were an achiever. Yes, I was an achiever. And so uh, I started addressing issues seriously. I won't give you the whole history because it's not like it was the only time it came up. But the, this journey that I'm on now, the current journey of healing, started uh, around 2006, 2007, when I made the decision to live openly as an incest survivor uh, because life just slaps you in the face. I always say that survivors come to the healing path kicking and screaming like a, a a toddler who doesn't want to come off the playground, but his diaper is full of poop. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. It's a great analogy. So my diaper full of poop. <laughs> you had to do something. I had to come off the playground. Yes. You know, and you had to take care of you. And take care of me. Yes. And when the busy no longer fulfills you and the busy doesn't take care of you, then you mm. have to have to find a way to absorb this into your identity and your beingness and all the other of uh, all the other things that I that I thought I was supposed to be in the world. So that's what a hard part came for me. Uh, one thing I know I'm good at is what? School. 
academics. <laughs> so when a tough gets going, <laughs> you went back to school. I, went, I did not go back to school, but I went to the research. Okay. It was the only way I know to study, to, to study. Yes. Right. And so I went to study myself again. Like what, like what is happening here? Like I was in a really mm. deep place, really dark, dark place. And so I went to the research and I'm like, what is going on with me? Which is great because I couldn't do that. The reason I had this sporadic healing journey, because I couldn't do that when issues came up when I, in my twenties or in my third, they didn't have the internet. So now finally I'm in this space of darkness and I have something to reach for because I can go online. I can research. I have access to scholarly journals and all this stuff. And so that's what I began looking at. Lo and behold, I found that what I was experiencing was pretty normal for the scope of what I had experienced. And with all this education you had, you didn't know that because it isn't head really. Right. That's until right. Until you saw this research and understood the numbers. Yes. And the internet has revealed so much. Yes. You know, and, and removed the blanket of shame. Right. That any survivor has had to deal with. In yep. secrecy before. Yep. So what were some of the things you learned that empowered you to start Talking Trees? And tell, tell us about Talking Trees. So in the research, what I found was that my experience was pretty normal. The number of violators, three, um, uh, who the violators are, family members, the age that it starts, you know, between five and eight. So like, I was like, it's like, oh, I'm normal in so many ways that I never even understood. Because if you never have conversations with people, you don't know. All you have is the narrative in your head Mm -hmm. that was given to you by the violators or those who who support them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I'm like, well, there's so much wealth of information here. So how is it that, that survivors are participating in, in this um, plethora of research, yet the information doesn't filter back down to them? Something's wrong with that process. First of all, as yes. a researcher and an intellect, I know that. Why do we have access to all this information and survivors don't? That's problematic. So I felt a, responsi- uh, a responsibility as a researcher as well as as a survivor to somehow get this information to filter down to survivors yes. who need it, right? Forget what you need for tenure. There are survivors who need access to this information. Yes, who are trapped in their childhood state Yes, of secrecy and shame yes. because their adult version has never been able to share. No, it has not evolved. But we don't know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know that at all. So uh, so that's what I started talking trees literally to help create language around adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. We didn't even have we didn't even publicly have the, to- the term coin. People were using it in a literature in a literature. But but people like me were not identifying as adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. We didn't know what to call ourselves. Mm. Right. Because uh, we weren't, we didn't consider ourselves victims of, of, of sexual violence or whatever, and we didn't consider ourselves um, um, children. So we, did, we didn't even know what to call ourselves, much less how to talk about these experiences, yeah. right? And so I spent a lot of time helping to craft language so people could, when, they, when people wanted to have a voice, they had words to go with the voice that they were seeking. Amazing. Right. So a lot of even 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 a term going from victim to survivor, there's a difference. 
and when you talk about being a victim versus when you talk about being a survivor. Yes, one's empowering and one's disempowering. Right. So uh, issues like that, uh, ha- giving people information about this is what a, a, a healthy childhood could look like. This is what you, we were entitled to. So, but when you when you are trapped in a in a dysfunctional system, you don't know that there is mm-hmm. anything else. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh, you're supposed to have autonomy. Like, oh, people are supposed to give you choices. Like, oh, people are supposed to make you feel safe. Like, you don't like not all children like close and lock their bedroom. Like, what? What do you mean? You mm-hmm. were never afraid of the dark. Like, you don't. Yes. <laughs> you, you know, ask. You, you don't questions. understand what is the lines between all this right so you're never really living your full authentic self or even your full adult self because you're carrying around so much baggage from childhood so i wanted to create an organization that would help survivors unpack some of that stuff Mm -hmm. so i've written every day for the past 10 years to help survivors do that wow that's a huge commitment Yes. And something that must be a priority for you in your life with all the other things you have going on. How do you make space for something like that? I have clients telling me they don't have five minutes to meditate every day or to take care of themselves. And this is a commitment you've made to others that you've kept every day for 10 years. No matter where I am in the world. And I have been a lot of places in the world. (laughs) So, yes, it's a priority. I knew that it had to be daily. I knew that because I knew the complexity of what survivors live with and trying to write rant and, and the one thing, one of the things that survivors grow into is getting accustomed to not having consistency and having their mm. lives not be predictable, which is, which is extremely important to human development, that children can predict what's going to happen around them and that they feel safe and that they can rely on something. Knowing that those things are, are often absent for adult survivors, it was critical for me to provide that and not play with this thing. Either I was going to do it or not do it. You show up, you be consistent, and you be supportive. And that's what I, my commitment has been for the last 10 years. People don't have to guess when Dr. Bakari is going to post again. That was really great. I wonder when she's going to post again. Yeah. I mean, you know. uh, Robert Soldini writes a book about the power of influence and persuasion. And one of the six keys is consistency. Yes. And so, you know, when when you're buying or negotiating, even as a business or with a company, showing up consistently, doing what you say you're going to do. Right. And, and I imagine, because we don't know who we're dealing with in business, some percentage of people we deal with every day have been victims absolutely and are survivors now absolutely and since they're survivors they could be triggered easily by you not calling back when you say you're going to call back by not delivering the proposal when you say you will and that creates a lack (laughs) of trust yeah yeah absolutely Absolutely. yeah there's (laughs) 60 million adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse uh in just in america alone just in america there's 60 million. So yes, they're all around us. They're everywhere. <laughs> you know, just because you can't see them, like, like trust. Yes. That ghosts are always in a room. So what is your hope? What do you, what would you love to see happen next? And how can people engage with you and Talking Trees and help support the organization and help you make change? So 
The last couple of years, what I've been really focusing on is finding listeners. I spent uh, over five years, the first eight years of Talking Trees, I've spent trying to help survivors find the voice. One big thing that happened with the Me Too movement, which was a piece of it was very disappointing to me, was to have all these voices come out. And then a question becomes, well, who's listening? Who's listening to all these and what kind of damage we may be doing by people just by people opening themselves up and having nowhere to be heard. So, so the last couple of years, I have really been asking people to listen. So we started another part of Talking Trees called the We Too Mission, where I'm going Love to it. doctors and saying, hey, when people come to you and, you're, and your hands need to go on their body, are you conscious? Are you aware? How are you interacting with people? Mm. Saying to, to therapists, just because you've been trauma trained, are you, are you conscious enough about who's in front of you that your first question is not about forgiveness or the details or whatever, that you are there to meet that client where they are, you know, talking to uh, people who work in sexual assault and say, you ask all the questions when someone, a rape victim comes into you, you ask all the essential questions, but the question is not on your list is, is this the first time your body has been violated? Because because adult survivors are four times more likely to be victims in adulthood. Mm. So if no one's ever feeding them that information, they can't make a change. If people don't understand that vulnerability, they can't make a change. So I've been going to different types of professionals, agencies, and say, hey, survivors are talking. I am asking you, what are you doing to listen? How are you changing your organization? How are you changing the way that you approach people? What What kind of ideas are you considering in your practices? that may create more space for adult survivors to live comfortably and take care of themselves. So that's where we're, that's where Talking Trees is heading now, trying to, trying to set the, the tone and the path in society to prepare to listen generously when, when these accounts are told. Yeah, so I'm really hearing this theme of commitment through consistency throughout your conversation. Uh, with me around writing every day for 10 years, around helping other healthcare professionals maintain also that commitment to consistency around how people are treated. And so if somebody's listening who needs this type of information, which is really all of us, because we don't know who's on our team at work. Right. We don't know who's working for us. Uh, We don't know when an employee is in tears because somebody uh, put their hands on them and thought they were giving a shoulder rub and it was nice and it wasn't for them. You know, so so those types of things, um, we don't always have to understand. We just need to be available to allow people to tell us what they need. Right. Yeah. Because people, people grow into their humanity much greater when they feel safe. Right. So is getting a copy of the book a good way to support Talking Trees? Yes, it's a great way to support someone who's been working for free for 10 years. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so so getting the book, uh, and, it's, and it's on Amazon, and you can order it in any store. And it's called... uh, It's not difficult to get. Too Much Love is Not Enough, A Memoir of Silence of Childhood Sexual Abuse. But if you go to my website, rosinabakari.com, my name is spelled R-O-S-E-N-N-A-B-A-K-A-R-I. 
my first name and last name, rosinabakari.com. You'll find links to all of the work that I do from writing on Medium to the other books that I've written to the uh, the link to Talking Trees. That's great. So, we'll put all that in the show notes. Great. And my suggestion is people should buy two books, yes. one for yourself and one to give away. Yes. To and someone yeah, you love. Keep it on your shelf. Give yeah. it to people. Take it, Buy 10 copies and take them to the nearest shelter. Because with or, those those numbers, someone you know, many people you know, have been through this experience. Yes. So thank and you. And on medium.com, there's actually article. There's a, a one article in particular about how to respond when a survivor discloses. So if you find, and it's Rosina B, but if you go to my website, you'll you'll find a link okay, to Medium. Okay, that's powerful for, I think, every manager and every business leader to read because we never know, especially in human resources. Yes. You know, we never know when someone's gonna walk in and being uncomfortable is not a solution. Right. Yes, thank right. you so much, Rosina. Thank, thank you for you. sharing your story and all this great wisdom with us. Thank you. This episode of Crazy Busy, The Interviews was recorded and supported by the Art House Hotel, New York City, with 291 guest rooms, three on-site restaurants, and nightly entertainment. Book your next stay at the Art House Hotel or call in for group rates and events. ArtHouseHotelNYC.com.